is Barbara Gerke. I'm from Germany and I came here in 2002 to do the MSc in Anthropology, followed by the diploma which I completed in 2008. My topic is Tibetan longevity practices and concepts of the lifespan among Tibetan communities in Darjeeling, northeastern India, where I've been living for many, many years. And currently I'm teaching at Humboldt University in Berlin, starting a new research project in September. And while I was preparing this research project that I'm about to embark on, which is on toxicity in Tibetan medicine, I just um, started writing and looking at, at major debates in medical anthropology on efficacy and safety. And I'm going to read this out and hope that we can get into a discussion about these debates and new thoughts. So in relation to my new research project, I've come to think about issues of efficacy and safety and ask myself the question, how the shift of focus has come about in medical anthropology over the past years? What are the reasons and how does it affect medical anthropologists in their studies of Asian medical systems? Medical anthropology has already become more interdisciplinary when it comes to the study of medicinal plants. This new interface of ethnobotany and medical anthropology, for example, is reflected in publications such as the recent book, Plants, Health and Healing, which is on the table. Percent discount by Elizabeth and Stephen Harris, both working here in Oxford. So, despite the varying scientific backgrounds in this book, the volume presents a wide range of studies that have a common focus, the circumstances and relationships with which plants are collected, prepared, administered, tested and evaluated. And Elizabeth, in her introduction, points out an interesting fact. She says the anthropology of pharmacology so far has actually not focused on the mater materiality of drugs, but rather on social aspects like uh, the meaning, Nina Atkins' work, for example, or socioeconomic and cultural interpretations, Nichtas' work in India, symbolic efficacy, there we have Merman's placebo studies, or we have social efficacy, like the social life of medicines, the book by Fandelis and White. And Sue and hers are argue that the pharmaceutical anthropologists have left the study of physiological efficacy to biomedicine and only accounted for socio-cultural aspects. And this is something that seems to be changing, and I want to look at this change. Uh, when we look at books like um, Global Pharmaceuticals by Petrina et al. Um, they, uh, what Petrina et al. called the anthropology and the pharmaceutical nexus seems to be expanding into a direction where medical anthropologists more directly look at the material substances of pharmacology themselves. And this new focus on substances seems to be linked to issues of safety. So why is there this movement towards issues of safety? Anthropologists know that studying pharmaceuticals nowadays is a global event, embedded in pharmaceutical trade and global inequalities. Ethnographies of global pharmaceuticals involve ethics, markets, practices. A lot of herbal drugs are now packaged and sold in a very similar way to biomedical pharmaceuticals. For example, Martin Bode worked on the commodification of Ayurvedic drugs. It's an example here. Also, these new rules and regulations um, for medicinal plant import into Europe um, make safety a topical issue. 
So for countries where traditional medicine is a national asset, such as China, safety is an issue of economic expansion. China, for example, wants to play a significant role in the modernization and globalization of Chinese medicine. For example, TCM has already undergone a shift towards Chinese medicine and pharmacotherapy, now CPM, to meet these commodified forms of global health. So the worldwide growing demand for traditional medicine requires that the countries where medicines are produced safeguard quality and safety of their medicinal products. For example, in Germany, Tibetan medicine can only be legally imported if it is licensed in the country of production, which at this point is only in China. All other imports from India or other places are considered illegal. But China's GMP standards are not yet fully implemented. They began only in 2001. They were made effective for all Tibetan pharmacies across China in 2004. And we have Martin Sachs' study, also here from this department, on GMP in, in China. And he has shown some really interesting path of, parts of the implementation of GMP. Saxa showed, for example, that GMP standards in China do not always follow their own guidelines when it comes to profitable substances, such as this controversially, uh, controversial purified mercury sulfide containing Tutel, which is the main ingredient in some of the very popular uh, Tibetan precious pills. And China has discovered the value of Tibetan medicine by now and is actually marketing these precious pills which contain purified mercury um, across China and worldwide. So Tzotel is part of a national heritage and simply not listed under mercury-containing lists of ingredients in the GMP regulations. It's produced widely since it's officially secret, but it's been kept out of the GMP list. So um, not everyone claiming GMP practices you know, does GMP, and GMP is still a national affair. It's not, there's no international regulation to look at these safety issues through GMP. Another study from Ayurveda uh, was done by Safar in 2008, and they showed that actually 75% of the manufacturers of heavy metal-containing Ayurvedic supplements claim GMP standards. Many also claim to be members of associations that promote high-quality standards. But none of these claims could be associated with lower prevalence of toxic metals. So what consumers rely on as safety regulation in place might not be that safe. And this is becoming more public, and therefore it's becoming more of an issue also for medical anthropologists. So if you look at debates and how they've been expanding, I Remember, before coming here, I remember what to, you know, back in 2002, what were the issues we discussed. And um, I, came, I remember this famous paper by Joseph Altar, Heaps of Health. I don't know if it's still on the reading list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I remember we learned that through this uh, paper on you know, Ayurveda, medical systems are not, by definition, simply medical. Health is not taken for granted. Uh, and it's not a taken-for-granted concept that focuses on remedying illnesses. So Alton, for example, deconstructed this relationship between medicine, healing, and health to show that good health is not just the absence of disease and that embodied health can entail more than neural balance. 
And his point was to show that radical self-improvement is an essential aim in Ayurvedic medicine and that medical anthropologists should not take the remedial focus of medical systems for granted. Now this was okay, after 2005 is now on the reading list. I confess the same thing. But in 2002, this was for us, it was really groundbreaking, you know, and it was this approach to how medical anthropologists should look at the definition of health in ancient medicine. And looking back, I thought, so maybe this can also inspire us to ask similar questions now concerning the debates on efficacy and safety. And perhaps our current notions of safety are in need of broadening as much as our ideas of health were in 1999 by 2002 to encompass things like metaphysical fitness and Ayurveda. So is our current understanding of what is safe and what is toxic applicable to Asian context? What happens if what we consider safe is considered toxic and what we consider toxic is safe in another culture? Safety or implementing safety regulations are especially difficult if the idea of incorporating potentially toxic herbs or heavy metals may not be considered harmful in the country of origin. And here again I go back to a separate study which was on lead, mercury and arsenic as the heavy metals prevalent in how much time left? Yeah, so Sapar, he analyzed 193 Ayurvedic supplements manufactured in India and the US, sold in the US via the internet. And these heavy metal, metals are especially used in rejuvenating tonics. They're called Raza Shastra in Ayurveda, and they are contain the largest amount of heavy metals. 40% of the ingredients are usually metals. And actually 20.7% of the samples were found to have potentially toxic levels of lead, arsenic, and mercury. Now, a shortcoming of such studies is that they don't, they only talk about mercury as such, they don't differentiate between the type of mercury used, because most Asian medical systems use mercury sulfide, of which only 2% are being absorbed into the body. And the authors themselves argued, okay, we couldn't take account of this because these different forms of heavy metals haven't been studied yet. We don't know anything about it. So there's a whole open area of research uh, where medical anthropologists can do a lot. But nevertheless, levels of symptoms of toxicity have been reported in patients taking such substances over long periods of time. So there is a demand for herbal and mineral health tonics. Um, the markets are very profitable. Consumers are willing to spend a lot of money on of them, but they want them to be safe. And as medical anthropologists, we get drawn to these topics since they are so topical in our society. But how can we study them? And the first thing I'm going to look at in my new research project on toxicity in Tibetan medicine is looking at, okay, what what is actually safety? How, what constitutes safety? It's not all about toxicity. It's also about whether a substance has been adulterated, if it's inappropriate formulations, different substitutes having been used, lack of understanding of plant and drug interactions, or leading to toxic effects in the body. Um, and a lot of these things haven't been studied yet. So safety is not only about efficacious ingredients. It's also about dosage, contamination, 
Safety is therefore situational. The substance can be efficacious at a certain dosage and toxic at another. Erroneous substitutions of one plant for another can lead to toxic effects. So in Tibetan medicine, for example, the single ingredient is considered toxic. They never use a single ingredient. They are always mixed. And only in combination, they are considered safe. Um, so looking at these things would be um, how many more minutes? One, one more minute, okay? Okay. <laughs> so looking at these things will be very important as to what, what is contamination? How is it understood locally? And I think these things will um, need cross-disciplinary studies. Um, it's impossible to do this alone from one discipline. And I think this book um, that just came out actually showed that it's possible to have this cross-disciplinary studies, even though approaches to science may really differ between all the different authors. Um, the fact that they can come together at such a point is actually encouraging enough for me to <laughs> try something in this direction when embarking on this uh, project where I'll be looking at uh, Asian pharmacologists and how they reason about safety and what in our um, eyes are toxic substances. So I think that's culture-specific anthropological study, studies of toxic substances and of the underlying rationale of toxicity can considerably contribute to these cross-disciplinary safety debates in Asian medicines. Um, the difficulties are, I think, that the ethnography is more difficult. You have to develop a rapport with pharmacists and pharmacologists, uh, which influences also, you know, it has political issues and it's uh, difficult to research because a lot of this, these recipes and pharmacological practices are considered secret in Asian medicines and people not, don't easily talk about it. So it's quite a challenge to, to research. Anyway, I'm open to uh, give this debate for discussion and we'll look forward to your um, yeah, comments and questions. <laughs>